Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. Right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Compliance Guy. It is Tuesday, August 22nd. So we're one week away from the end of August, which I really am looking forward to because this week we are in the triple digits here in Georgia with a heat index climbing above 108, uh, uh, 108 degrees, which is just brutal. I know my good friend, Terry, who I'm keeping my, uh, uh, my fingers crossed for keeping her in my thoughts and prayers. She's out there dealing with the uh, effects of uh, Hurricane Hillary and all the bad things that are happening out there in California. But I know, you know, she's staying safe down there in Southern California, at least the best they can. So today is Tuesday, as I said, the 22nd of August. That means it's a hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. And I am excited for this one because we are finally talking about my favorite topic, compliance plans. Compliance. What's up, my friend? Good morning. I'm ex good. Um, yeah, the hurricane, they said it was a state of emergency. It really wasn't as bad as everyone thought. I mean, we got some rain, we got some wind. I think the problem is it's kind of like if it snows in California, which it hasn't in 101 years, people panic. And, uh, but there was, there was surfers out there in San Diego going, sweet dude, we're going to catch this, you know, wave. And, um, so it was, it was definitely some flooding. There was definitely some wind. I'm a little bit more North Orange County. So it was about probably about 80 miles from where it actually hit land, but we got, we got about three inches and I was looking at how my pool was kind of getting a little bit, uh, filled, but, <laughs> but it's, it's over now. No, no rain this morning. I actually have a sunny. It's nice. So we're, we're past it. It's all good. All right. Good deal. Well, I am glad to hear that. And I think we can jump straight in to okay. this topic and we'll, we'll, we'll scratch the surface, right? Because otherwise we could be here for hours. We could be here forever. And yeah, that wouldn't work. So let's talk compliance. So, so first of all, I think yeah. it's a good thing to kind of talk to the audience about what really a compliance plan is and in a general sense. And really it's a public, so everyone has to have access to it. It's a public written document. It details policies that an organization adheres to regarding its implementation of the elements of compliance. So what that means is that it has to be an accurate reflection of what's in place at any one time, uh, rules, how you handle situations, I mean, it's expected to undergo regular periodic review and revision to make sure that it's always in step with compliance activities of what this organization is. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, it's a living, breathing document. Um, an effective compliance program is a set of formal organizational systems intended to prevent, detect, and respond to potential problems identified by employees and other agents. Now, you did not hear me say healthcare, so this is a general statement. This is part of what's in healthcare and, and medicine. But the biggest thing here to take away is that a compliance program cannot by definition only exist on paper. 
It's a mindset, an operational model for how an organization has internalized the concepts and intent of a compliance culture and then made it their own. And just an example, some organizations that haven't used compliance programs or plans or whatever you want to call it, VW, Wells Fargo, Michigan State University, they were all in the news and they found quickly that when you do not effectively implement education, auditing, monitoring, investigating, disciplining, that's a big one, accountability, controls to prevent problems from occurring again, or otherwise run an effective compliance program, there's wrongdoing and people suffer and you just find that no one was in charge of preventing, finding, or fixing these regulatory or ethical issues. So that's where we're at as far as a compliance plan. So Sean, I'm going to throw it back to you. What does it mean to require a compliance plan? Because we know part of the participation of Medicare and Medicaid, because they're federal programs, the OIG says required, but people don't think that means it's mandated. Yeah. So I'll make it very simple, right? Dating back to 2010 under the Affordable Care Act, which came into play, stipulates in no uncertain terms on the Office of Inspector General's website that any physician engaged in the treatment of Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries will be required to have an OIG corporate compliance program. Required doesn't mean you can think about it. It doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean you may. It means it's mandatory. It is mandated under the Affordable Care Act dating back to 2010. If you don't believe me, just simply go to Google, type in OIG mandatory compliance program. It will take you to their main page. And on the very bottom, if you scroll down, you will see that statement almost verbatim as I gave it to you just a moment ago. I want to unpack a couple of things real quick that Terry was talking about. So the first thing is a culture of compliance. A culture of compliance means that it starts at the top of the organization and it goes all the way down to your vendors. It goes all the way down to your volunteers. Yes, you heard me correctly. Even a volunteer, if they have been excluded from the federal healthcare program participation, you cannot allow them to be a volunteer. If you have had a sanctioned vendor or an excluded vendor, that's why doing these monthly LEIE and these other checks to make sure that you're not employing or working with excluded individuals from the federal programs is so critical. The other thing that Terry brought up is something that I've been saying for probably about a decade. I call it an LBD. That's what I've always called it, a living, breathing document. That means that it has to be continuously evaluated. Now, continuous doesn't mean every single day, every single week, or every single month. It means on a reasonable basis. So for a small physician group, one to three doctors, one to five doctors, once a year is sufficient. Ten doctors, I don't know, maybe you want to look at it biannually, twice a year. Now you start getting into groups of 20, 25 and bigger. You got to look at these things at least quarterly, if not maybe twice a year. That's fine. 
That's a living, breathing document. And the only way to know that your compliance program is an effective compliance program is you have to have a monitoring and auditing program. If you don't If you don't audit your program and you don't monitor your program, how will you ever know it's an effective program? So a document that I would encourage people to take a look at is one that I absolutely, I think it's a fantastic document because it's only about 21 pages. And I know a lot of folks are going to be like, oh my God, you want me to read something from the United States Department of Justice Criminal Division? Yes, I do. Because it's in very plain English. Before my friend departed the Department of Justice, Kevin Polite, uh, who was the head of the criminal division and is now in private practice, he pushed out the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was again updated on March of this year, 2023. And to keep it really simple, because I don't want to get into more than what you know, we wanted to touch on for this and, and maybe Terry, it's a good idea for maybe us to make this part one on a series of compliance Probably. programs, yeah, right? There's so much to unpack here. Yeah. So there's three questions that the justice manual indicates are the fundamentals that every prosecutor should ask. And I teach a program called the prosecutor's playbook, right? Where I engage with defense counsel. I engage with some prosecutors and I go through the different functions of this document. So the three fundamental questions that a prosecutor is always going to ask himself or herself when it comes to making a charging decision or whether they're going to seek sanctions against an organization or whether they're going to look for what they call uh, a deferred prosecutorial agreement or a settlement agreement. The first question is, is the corporation's compliance program well-designed? <clears throat> Two, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? So in other words, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function effectively? That's where having an, you know, an, an effective auditing and monitoring compliance program or effective auditing and monitoring portion of your compliance program is so critical. And then finally, the third fundamental question, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? What do I mean by that? Is this a paperweight sitting on your desk or is this something that reasonably can be applied in your organization so that any employee of the group or the practice or the organization can understand their role, subscribe to it, and be compliant. So those are the three fundamental questions that you all should be asking yourself either in the initial design of a compliance program or in the updating of your compliance program. And, you know, the last thing I'll say about this, Terry, and I'll turn it back over to you. I teach a program called um, Building an Effective Compliance Program Through a Gap Analysis. 
the only way that you can actually build an effective compliance program is by doing a gap analysis. And a gap analysis is, is such a, a critical um, uh, 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 tool in building a compliance program because a gap analysis, and I'll put it in very simple terms, measures existing policies and SOPs, standard operating procedures, against industry standards or best practices, in addition to all the applicable laws, acts, regulations, statutes that are going to be out there. And to make it even more basic, results typically indicate gaps or deficiencies in the compliance program, including but not limited to potential regulatory violations. So identifying gaps allows a practice to take corrective action and mitigate ongoing and or future risks to the business. That's why a gap analysis is so important. All right, I'll pause there. Let me turn it back over to you because I know you've had some fun challenges with some some uh, folks who ask questions on your subscription program and some of your clients. Yeah, my, my Coding Corner clients, they've had some definite challenges in the recent weeks on this. So I think sometimes people miss the big picture when it comes to compliance. It's kind of like you and I trying to say, you know, you don't want that TPE audit. You don't want that UPIC audit. So be proactive. Make sure you're, you know, you're checking claims, that they're clean claims. And I think you and I get a lot of silent eye rolls going, oh, it's fine. I'm never going to get audited or, you know, it, it's not a big deal. And then all of a sudden we get a call when what happened? It's a big deal. And now they're trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the things that I think people miss when I talk about big picture is the fact that, yes, Medicare and the federal programs, Medicaid, they give us a lot of black and white information. So, and it's really easy to find, you know, you, you can, I know you can rattle off the federal register pretty easily. Um, and so, you know, where to find all this stuff. But one of the things I think people miss is the fact that let's face it, most practices are 30 to 40% Medicare and the rest is a commercial plan mix. That's a lot of patients. And so what's been happening lately, and let me just kind of set the stage for you, is that um, the contracts for providers that are in network, so they're provider contracts, whether it be United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, whatever, they have an inclusion. It's usually on buried somewhere. <laughs> These contracts are anywhere from 20 pages. I've seen one that was 251 pages. I'm like, what the heck? It's like you're buying a house, you know, and it says you have to have a compliance program and it has to be readily available um, to the payer, to the one that that's actually you're contracting with. And they go into maybe a page and a half of what they want in this compliance program. And so our plan and, you know, it, it really, it, it reads like a notebook. And so what I have found, and I'm having people come to me panic saying, Terry, oh my gosh, UHC came to us and said, we'd like to take a look at your compliance plan. So obviously they feel that there's some kind of uh, violation or a patient complaint. They only come after you when they think something happened and, or randomly, I mean, let's face it both. And they said, well, we, we have one working or we don't have one. And that's the biggest one. We don't have one to hand you. I can tell you, what are you asking? I can tell you what our policy is. They're like, no, no, no. You have an obligation. It's in your contract to give us a compliance plan upon demand. And now this is, I think this is now two commercial plans. And because they didn't have it, they immediately dropped them from an in-network status. And let me just 
give you why you don't want this to happen to you. First of all, you have patients that are on that network and now their out of pocket's going to change. Um, your reimbursement's going to change. But everybody knows that pesky little law called the No Surprises Act. Well, there is a hold on independent dispute resolutions, meaning that out-of-network physicians who aren't getting paid what they were doing or what they what they did, and they're not getting or they're getting paid very little, less than the Medicare fee schedule, have to go in and try to negotiate this this plan. Well, because it was flooded, HHS said, "Oh, we're going to put this on indefinite hold," which is terrible. Um, you know, we work with a a fellow colleague of ours, Karen George, and this is her whole life what she does as an attorney, and she said it's so frustrating for them because of this, and there's a backlog. But my point here is that. I actually think that plans are using this because now doctors are scrambling to get in network on the panel. And some of those panels are closed because they're full. And so they're dropping doctors who don't have a compliance plan. And now those closed panels are now opening up and taking in new doctors who will basically take what they're going to say as a fee schedule. Hopefully they're still have negotiating power. And now the doctors that were on there are out in the cold. So this is where I, I almost think like it was, I don't want to say a conspiracy theory, but it's almost like a, a plan. It seems like, you know, with, it reminds me of kind of nature, you know, you see these wildfire fires, you see flooding, you see things. And unfortunately it does eliminate life. And then the, the cycle of life, you know, turns around and you get things. I'm seeing this in the insurance industry. I'm seeing this in healthcare where it seems like out with the old in with the new. And it just seems like this is another way for the bureaucrats and the payers to high, you know, high volume physicians that they see that are, you know, increasing how much their expenditures are to them. Now they're able to drop them and get doctors who are maybe new, who maybe have less, you know, physician on there. And the other thing is that you're kind of going to also, and I hate to say this on a podcast, but you're going to screw yourself if you don't get this in under control with a compliance plan, because, because of that IDR being on hold, as far as being able to negotiate your rates, if you're out of network, you have to actually accept what they pay and only charge the patient as if they were in network. So that was one of those new rules, which is terrible, but this is if you're an out of network facility or out of network physician so this now encourages patients, I think, to buy terrible insurance because now they're treated the same as if they bought great insurance. And so you're going to see a lot of exchanges, a lot of, they call it California. We have a California plan. It's just awful. And I just think that, you know how we talk about, Sean, about how, you know, things roll downhill. It, we're talking about compliance and all of a sudden, again, follow the money. It's now, now it's about reimbursement. Now it's about in-network. Now it's about rates and, and getting paid. And doesn't it always come back to how we're getting paid? It compliance it seems, does. I mean, we're talking compliance about trying to make sure that we are, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, keeping our nose clean as far as the, the rules, the regulatory information, making sure we're above scrutiny. And it always comes back to getting paid. And so now I think that people are missing the big picture that if you want to get paid, if you want to keep your plans, if you want to stay you know, you're, you're not guaranteed to be an in-network physician forever. You have to look at compliance beyond just thinking, well, I probably should have one because I'm a Medicare Medicaid provider. 
um, or I should have one because it's a, it's the right thing to do. No, you, first of all, it's required for a federal, if you're taking federal funds, but secondly, read your contracts. Commercial plans are absolutely now saying if you violate the contract and if you don't have one, they can drop you like a hot potato. So, I mean, your, your position on that. And, and actually if you could also, you and I talked offline before required plans, working plan, completed plan. So can you speak to that? Because I think people don't understand the whole, how that works. Yeah, no, absolutely. So here, here's the thing, right? There, there's no such thing as a completed compliance plan. I think you always have to be able to demonstrate good faith efforts towards working towards compliance, right? So as I explained to Terry, you know, my philosophy before we started the podcast today, I look at compliance as a journey. It's not a destination. It's not like you're going to be out in the middle of the sea on a Royal Caribbean cruise liner and you're going to look and go, oh, there's our port. We're going to go in, tie up, drop anchor, and, you know, we've arrived. It doesn't work that way. You're always going to be just outside of the jetty. You're always going to be just outside of the harbor. Why? Because laws, statutes, acts, regulations change. We've had two years in a row, 2022 and 2023, where Stark and the anti-kickback statutes, we had significant changes to those. You're going to see here shortly a shift in the civil definition of knowingly under the False Claims Act to mirror that of 31 U.S.C. Uh, 3729 to where it's going to be more definitive um, or depending on who you are, less definitive. Uh, I, I have a real issue with what Medicare is trying to do with changing the definition of knowingly. That one bothers me a lot. But anyways, we'll save that for another day. The last thing that I want to say, Terry, about compliance programs is this. Don't think that by having a voluminous binder that has a thousand pages in it, that if you were to turn that over to an investigator or to a prosecutor and you think that's just going to make them go away, guess again, it's going to make them take a deeper look. They're going to scrutinize you more. I am of the mindset that less is more. I love having compliance programs that are measured, that are limited in scope to the organization. I have one group where our compliance plan, the one that we give to our staff internally because I don't want to overwhelm them, is only about 12 pages. And people are like, there's no way. And I've showed it to several of my friends who are prosecutors with the Department of Justice. And they look at it and they're like, this works. It works because it's specific to the organization. You're not putting a whole bunch of nonsense and loud stuff out there that, you know, and when I say loud stuff, we call it noise, right? We want to block out the noise and we want them to hone in and focus on the specifics of the organization. So I'm not somebody who tries to pull the wool over the government's eyes. I'm just not that person. If you want somebody to do that for you, call somebody else. Me, I'm very succinct. I'm very meticulous and I'm very much focused on what has to be in place for your organization. Because if I were to come to you, Terry, and I, as a prosecutor, and I were to say, Terry, explain to me this policy on the application of the modifier 25. And you said to me, well, that's just the way we've, we've always done it, right? 
which happens a lot to people. You and I hear that every day. <laughs> That's what I was told to do. That's how we bought. Who's that? Who's they? You know, but all of a sudden I look at it as a prosecutor and I say, okay, hold on a minute. Your policy says that you are only going to apply the modifier 25 in sparing occasions, rare occasions, when we have a significantly separately identifiable EM service above and beyond a pre service workup of a minor procedure. How come when I run your utilization reports into government database, 92% of the claims that you are submitting have a 25 modifier on it. Well, I don't know. That's just what our policy says. Well, your policy is garbage. You're not even adhering to it. So I think people can see my point. Don't have a policy just for the sake of having a policy. Because if you're not going to do it or you can't do it, then you're going to be in worse shape had you not had a policy at all. Well, the thing I also find is that people have policies that they don't update. I've seen a 25 modifier policy that is outdated 10, 15 years. And then look what's going to happen next year. The the new fee schedule has this obnoxious, and I say it because I think it's going to only apply to primary care. It's going to cause all kinds of trouble. That new uh, add-on G code for Medicare for complexity of patient, the G2211. But they say you can't have it if you put a 25 modifier on your E&M code because it's an add-on to an E&M for a complex patient. And so I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. But what if you have, what if you have, we don't want to get into that, you know, coding thing, but what if you have an outdated um, policy on 25? Well, nobody addressed the new stuff that's coming in 2024. And like, you know, and to your words, what if you had changes in, um, you know, some codes aren't, aren't um, individual codes anymore. I know in EP, I do a lot of cardiology. They have add-on yes. codes for, you know, for the EP testing. They're no longer individual. So you have to have a, a primary code with it or for stenting of the heart. You can't, you, if you're a Medicare, you can't bill an, uh, an additional branch of an, a regular artery. But if you're um, a private payer or if you're not 65, you're not Medicare pay plan, then you possibly could. So what Sean's, I think, alluding to is that policies and compliance are great. But if you get too technical as far as this is what we're going to do and for every single patient in this instance, you're going to have a nightmare. What What we suggest is that you have general policies on how to do things right, how to, who, who's the person to come to should you have questions, uh, um, if there's a doctor that's in violation of compliance. So let's say you have doctors that do their own coding and you have one doctor, there's always one, that codes everything a level five because, of course, all his patients are sicker than everybody else's. And so they're all level five, doesn't matter what what they see the patient for. You go in and you find out, actually, that was a level three or a two or four, whatever. What's the, um, you know, what, what's the response to that physician? What what happens to that physician if they're in violation of what your policy is for that? And you do you have an internal way to check or police physicians, you know, before, is it retrospective after it's been billed? Is it prospective before it's billed? And so I think you need to first start with a general plan. And I think this is, I think Sean and and is on a good point. I think we should do this in phases, but kind of break it down what, where you should start. Cause I think a lot of people come to me and say, we don't know where to start with our compliance plan. Do we start in the billing office? 
Do we start with the physicians? Do we start in the back office? Do we need a separate one for mid-level providers? Um, we have some doctors that are only in the hospital. Um, I know one that just came up, this was a big one, is that, as you know, when you uh, deal with time-based codes, you can't use time for anything the staff did. So then a doctor said, well, I use a scribe. They're doing all my dictation. I'm like, well, guess what? <laughs> you can't, that's a staff member. You can't use any of that time that they're doing to uh, input your services into the system or to dictate your notes. They're like, well, they're acting as me. I'm like, no, you're not doing it. You're not taking the time. You use a scribe to free yourself up for other things. So if they're doing that, you can't use their time. Now you're back to medical decision-making. And it's, it's those nuances and those things that you have to not only be on the same page for your organization, whether you be a single physician practice or a hundred physician practice, you have to make sure that you have continuity, that you have consistency, and that everybody knows what's going on. Because I'm telling you, patients talk. One of the things that I know that we talked about on the roundtable um, yesterday was just talking about, um, you know, waiving a share of costs for patients. And we have to be careful with that because what if you have a patient in the waiting room that says, oh, I love my doctor. They never charge me my copay. And you got a patient sitting there going, what? My doctor charges me every time. And that's the doctor who's compliant. <laughs> so when it comes to compliance plans, there's so much information. I think what Sean and I can do, you know, is, as far as some point, we'll tell you where to start. We'll tell you kind of, we'll give you some suggestions as far as what language should start, what department is a good place to start and what the private sector, you know, as far as payers is looking for in a compliance plan. I'll bring some contract language and then Sean will be able to speak to what OIG and Medicare is looking for because there has to be something in writing. There has to be something in writing and it is an, an ever moving you know, train. It, it's a living, breathing object that constantly has to be updated. So I'll turn it back over to you on that note. Yeah, I, I think, I think we kind of hammered this, um, this surface level look at why and how compliance plans are needed. You know, where I would tell you to start is in the federal register and it's, um, the publication date is October of uh, 2000, and the actual document citation for where you could find this information is 65 FR 59434. So 65 Federal Register FR 59434, and you will find it on the beginning page of 59434 through 59452. So it's about 19 pages long, and this is the uh, OIG Compliance Program for Individual and Small Group Physician Practices. I think that's a great place to get started, and uh, Terry and I will uh, flesh out some uh, future episodes in the next month on uh, how to build an effective compliance plan and contract language and some of these other things. So. I think this was a great episode. It definitely went a lot longer than what I thought we were going to for a scratch to surface episode, but I think folks are going to enjoy this one, Terry. I think so too. I think we we're getting you started, getting you in the mindset, something, something that you can think about and now you can come back to us and, and we'll have some more information for you. And remember, if you do need to have a compliance program set up, contact either one of us um, and we can definitely facilitate that. 
Absolutely. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this episode of the Compliance Guy, our hashtag Terry Tuesday episode. So on behalf of myself and my very good friend, Terry Fletcher, thank you all for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. I'll be back later this week with some more episodes, probably a couple of daily doses. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy. <laughs>